This morning is Sunday, June 19th. It's Father's Day, and our message is, we are our father's children. Father's children. That's kind of a profound statement. Does anybody know, besides Matthew, what the word for father is? See, Matthew cheats. He comes and studies with me in the morning. What the word for father is in Hebrew? Abba. Come on, look at y'all. Y'all are biblical scholars. Now, the second part of the question. What is the word for goodness or kindness? Oh, we got silence. I finally found something that would stump you. Do you know how in English the word good and the word God are very close? Right? We just got one letter and that letter has the same sound as the one before it. That kind of leads you to believe that the etymology of the word, that the history of the word comes from the same root, that good and God have the same general meaning through history and that they began to diverge as we talked about God, but they have the same origin, same root. Well, Abba, A-B-B-A, is a Hebrew word that means God. It's a personal name for God, like Daddy God. You know what the word to show kindness or goodness is? Abba. (laughs) A-A-B-A-H. So we have A-B-B-A, Abba, and Abba, A-A-B-A-H. Just a slight difference in pronunciation, right? And it means to show goodness or kindness. In other words, in the Hebrew's mind, the word father, daddy God, is very closely related with kindness and goodness. What do you think, without stretching the bounds of our imagination, that God intended by relating those words so closely? You would relate goodness and kindness with God. We're supposed to grow up with the thought that our daddy God wants to show us kindness, wants to show us goodness. The devil works very hard to create cynics and skeptics. He works very hard in your life to defame God, to make you believe God will not do what He said He would do, that God will not come through for you. Oh, He may do it for somebody else, but not you. The very name and nature of God portray just the opposite. God's very name has the idea, even what you call all fathers, with goodness and kindness. Abba and Abba. Fathers used in a few senses in the, in the Bible. And not just in the Bible, in English. But it's important to know that what we think of in English is also present in the Hebrew. Progenitor. Does anybody know what a progenitor is? I hesitated to use that word. This is an ancestor. It's somebody who began your family line. In the Bible, the word father doesn't just mean the guy who uh, helped conceive you. Father could be your grandfather or your great-grandfather or your Fathers. A common use of this kind of term is when you die, you wanted to be gathered to your fathers, the Old Testament said. In other words, one father raised his children who became fathers themselves, who raised their children who became fathers. So they, progenit- they were the progenitors of a family line. Now this is important because not only are fathers progenitors, but they're also the head or the chief or the leader the prophet. Prophets were called fathers sometimes. You see people speaking to an Old Testament prophet and call them father. Elisha called Elijah his father and they were not blood related. So, what do we call Thomas Edison? He's the father of electricity, right? Why? Because he's the one that instituted the principles by which we understand electricity. So all of these terms are present in Hebrew too. If somebody's the author of something if they're the source of something, if they began anything, then they could be called the father of it. Well, all of those terms apply to God. God began our race. He's our progenitor. He's the source that we began from. He's also the head or the chief or the ruler of our race. He's our Lord. So He's our Father in that sense. He's the author of your very life. He began all things that are good. So God is our Father. This morning as we study Father's Day, as we look at the role of a father, I want you to see God as your Father in the Word. Now, the Bible assumes something. The Bible assumes that all fathers would love their children. Now, I realize that's not always true. But this is the way that God designed this, that the natural flow of love and authority would start from the Father of all things and flow right on down through the chain of authority. 
that it would flow from the father all the way down through fathers and mothers to their children, to their animals, to their livestock, to the little bunny rabbits that were their pets, whatever it might be, that this would be a natural flow. Now, while the Bible assumes that love flows downward, it does not assume that it flows upward. Is there any question in anybody's mind that Jennifer will love Abigail when Abigail is born? Now, that's a very natural thing, isn't it? Everybody clings to the children that come from their bodies. They love them immediately. But do children naturally show love to their parents? Not always. From the time a child's small, it'll resist everything that you do. You want to change its diaper and it doesn't understand what's going on, it'll slap at your hands. You come in from outside, no! Doesn't it hurt your feelings as a parent when a child looks at you and says, I hate you? You know they don't really hate you, but it still hurts your feelings. Children have to be taught to reciprocate love. But it's supposed to be within parents to love children naturally. And there's a reason for that. Turn with me to James 1. In the book of James, you find out something about God. Did you know that the songs that Matthew chose this morning all had to do with fathers? Did you know that he was singing the Scripture this morning? That kind of makes him a psalmist, doesn't it? Oh, I'm just kidding. In James chapter 1, this is on page 1343 in the Thompson Chain, starting in verse 16. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all He created. Where does every good and perfect thing come from? Everything that is good flows from God. So if you have a question, you know, I wonder who's responsible for something that was good. It's God. doesn't matter how it came to you. doesn't matter whether Daddy did it or Mama did it or some stranger did it. If it is good, the author or the father of that act was God. That's what the Bible teaches us. This is to get ingrained in us that the idea is that the Father is the source of all good things. He's the progenitor of it. He's the author of it. He's the Father of it. This was supposed to teach us about His nature. That's important because while this flows downhill, it doesn't necessarily flow back uphill. We have to learn it. This is why you see a verse like Deuteronomy 5 Verse 16, and it's also in Exodus. I'll read this one too because you'll know it. It's the fifth commandment. Anybody know the fifth commandment? I'm giving you a big hint. Honor your father and mother as the Lord your God has commanded you so that you may live long and that it may go well with you in the land the Lord your God is giving you. This is the first commandment the book of Ephesians says that came with a promise. Usually a commandment is do this or... Thus and so will happen to you. <laughs> this is a commandment that says, if you do this, good things will happen to you. Why is that? Why is it important to honor your father and mother? It's important because you're showing that you believe that this love and these good things that are naturally flowing down from the throne of God to you should be reciprocated back to those they came through. In other words... It shows that you believe that God is using your parents to do good things for you. I said, but my parents didn't do good things. My parents did horrible things. Eric, you don't know what my parents did to me. I have no toenails because my parents pulled them off. I don't know what horrible things somebody's parents may have done, but anything good that ever happened to you in your life came from your Heavenly Father. And we have to learn to reciprocate that. It doesn't come natural. It doesn't come natural. It's easy to receive good things. It's against our nature and it's very hard to give good things to other people. But to the extent that we're like our Heavenly Father, we're pleasing to God and we live a long time in the land and do good things. That's pretty well our goal, isn't it? To have an abundant life, to do good things. The love needs to flow back upwards the same way that it does downwards. I know that the reason that the family unit is attacked the way that it is, the reason that so many fathers are so pitiful, is because this gives children a warped view of who God is. 
If all I ever do is beat Judah, if all I ever do is discourage Judah and tell Judah what he is not, what he cannot do, and why he's a bad kid, he will have a distorted view about God. But if what Judah sees from me is mercy, if what Judah sees from me is love, discipline, yes, but in love, a sincere desire for good things for Judah, then he will assume that his heavenly Father is that way. Have you ever wondered why out of all the terms we use for God, Father would be one of them? This is why. It was intended that you relate the way your earthly father loved you to the way that your heavenly father loved you. And the devil's worked hard to foul that up. Not just on the father's part. Some of you who are children, that's all of you in here, all of you had a mother or father, are unreasonably hard on your parents. Society has taught you that the way that you cope with your inadequacies is to blame them upon your father. In its very core, this is rebellion to God. This is no different than blaming everything bad that's happened in your life upon God. Well, I'm this way because this is the way God made me. That's just like saying, well, I'm this way because Daddy didn't love me when I was little. Because Daddy... Friends, your life is what your life is. And if there are any good things in it, it came from your Heavenly Father. We need to learn to appreciate that. We need to take responsibility for who we are today without looking backwards and blaming it on everybody. You know why? What is the problem with blaming your father for the problems in your life? Well, your father had a father himself. And you know what? He wasn't perfect either. And his father had a father who wasn't perfect. And that goes all the way back to Adam, the father of the human race who sinned and screwed it up for all the rest of us. (laughs) See, blaming your father doesn't do anything but point to the failings of the human race that you share. It's much better to embrace your heavenly Father as the giver of all good things. It's healthy. It doesn't matter what the psychologists say. This is healthy. I promise it is. Love naturally flows downhill. It has to be taught to go uphill. Incidentally, why does the Bible say honor your father and mother and not honor your mother and father? Why do you think that might be? Because God has instituted a divine order. He is at the top of it. He... The person who answers next to him is the father in a household. The one that answers next is the mother in a household. Then the firstborn son, all the way down the chain. And when these are out of order, as they are in most households, it begins to view, uh, to cause a distorted view. In South Louisiana, people have a real problem with Jesus answering to Mother Mary, the Queen of Heaven. This is ridiculous. But that view is propagated by the fact that mama is also the head of their houses most of the time. They stay at home and live with mama much longer than anywhere else I've ever lived. And when they're in their 40s and married and supposed to be out on their own, they still answer to mama. But you never hear papa talked about much. Isn't that strange? You know, I have all the countries in the world, and I didn't intend to do this, and I'm sorry, but all the countries in the world... Do you know who has the highest incidence of adult males living at home late in life? Italy. It's not uncommon for 40 and 50-year-old bachelors to live with mama. Isn't that strange? Why do you think that might be, though? It comes from a distorted view of how the heavenly family, so to speak, works. I didn't intend to go there, and so y'all just chew that up and spit it out for whatever it's worth, and we're going to move on with God elucidating the truth and leaving error to your own judgment. In 1 John, we find out that if we want to honor the Father, there's a way, there's a method, there's something that we need to do. So turn with me to 1 John. We're going to be in the fourth chapter. 1 John's near the back of the New Testament. In fact, if you get to the book of Revelation, hang a left, it's easy to find. The fourth chapter of 1 John in the Thompson chain is on page 1357. We're going to start in the seventh verse. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed His love among us. He sent His one and only Son into the world that we might live through Him. This is love. Not that we love God, 
but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete or is perfected in us. We know that we live in Him and He in us because He has given us His Spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in Him and He in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in Him. In this way, love is made complete among us so that we may have confidence on the day of judgment. Because in this world, we are like Him. Why might you have confidence on the day of judgment? Because in this world, we are like Him. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because He first loved us. If you want to have no fear of judgment, if you want to be pleasing to God, you love because He first loved you. You realize that every good thing in your life, every good gift has flowed straight down from God to you and you want to reciprocate that action. You want to act like God acts by doing good for others by showing love for others because this is what God would do. You can have confidence on the day of judgment if you live a life that is like God's life. So often we think about that's not doing certain things, not having sex before marriage, not drinking, not smoking, not doing whatever kind of thing you might think God disapproves of. That's not what's pleasing to God. What's pleasing to God are the things that you do that are like Him. Not the things that you don't do. Now, I'm not telling you to go out and run and do all the things that you've been told not to do. I'm telling you that what's pleasing to God are the things that you do that are like Him. In fact, following our Father's example of love shows us to be His children. In fact, a child's actions can give testimony about the father's character or about the child's illegitimacy. If a child is born, if there are two African-American parents and a child is born with blonde hair and blue eyes, what is that a big signal of concern about? This child might not be that woman's husband's son, right? Right? Because he doesn't share the same characteristics as the father. You know, when they take baby's blood types, there's only so many combinations that can make a baby's blood type. If the combinations don't work for that baby to have the same kind of blood in his veins as the two parents did, one of the combinations, that's a cause for concern, isn't it? The characteristics of the child, the physical attributes, the way that a child acts, testifies about the Father. In Matthew 5, I'll turn to Matthew. If a child acts a certain way, looks a certain way, has certain attributes and characteristics, it's easy to know who his father is. By the same token, actions, physical characteristics, attitudes of the heart can give the impression that a child's illegitimate. One of the problems with the church today is that we run around claiming God is our Father, but our actions tell a different story. We run around saying that God is our Father, but we don't love like He does. The same person that is at the altar in church singing hallelujah is in the parking lot on the way to Piccadilly giving the one-finger salute to somebody who cuts them off in traffic. We say, oh, well, this is hypocrisy. No, it's not that it's hypocrisy. It shows that... Either your testimony about your father through your actions is that you have a different father than you claim or that the father's not who he said he is. God desired a testimony. Are you all in Matthew 5? Starting in verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. 
But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. The city on a hilltop cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Did you get that? Your good deeds. Darnell's good deeds will cause people to praise her Father who is in heaven. Your actions on the earth can determine, they can influence how people view God. You don't think that's true. If you don't think that's true, watch people's children. When you go to a playground and there's one little kid at the playground who's not playing nice with all the other kids, he's throwing sand in their eyes, he's spitting at the little girls, you know, he's doing nasty things. Is your first thought not negative about his parents? Where is this child's parents? Our actions determine how people view our Father. You've heard that Christian is, means Christ-like or little Christ. This is true. But a very simplistic way to think about this is if you want people to have a wholesome view of God, they need to have a wholesome view of you. It'd be really easy to get condemned about that. Say, so, well, I'm not perfect. You're not. And you're called towards perfection. And this is a glaring contradiction. How can you who are imperfect be called towards perfection and deal with that? God has promised to credit you with righteousness if the attitude of your heart is right, if you will pursue Him. He knows TJ's not perfect when He called him. He knew Brad wasn't perfect. He assumed Eric was. No, I'm kidding. He knew we weren't. But when He called us, He agreed that if our heart was right, He would credit us with righteousness. And the way He knows if your heart is right is how you act towards Him. People are watching us. They're watching us all of the time. Sometimes it's uncomfortable. Christians live inside of an aquarium. We really do. And people are looking for the opportunity to accuse you. And most of the time, it's totally without basis. You know, they hold you to a different standard than the rest of the world. I'll never forget, I was sitting in a job site trailer, 110 degrees outside, with people that I thought acted like animals. We were in the electrical trade at that time. <laughs> Matt, Matt can relate. I was reading my Bible and the whistle blew for us to go back to work. I finished reading the paragraph and closed the Bible. The guys that I was with began to give me a hard time because I was reading on company time. It was 30 seconds. In the other room attached to the trailer, my superintendent was reading a pornographic magazine at the very same moment. And they didn't think a thing about that. Why is that? They were looking for something that would cause my life to be less convicting to them. Because my actions had been causing them to think about God's holiness. Not because I'm somebody special. Because I love Him. So they were looking for a way to alleviate themselves of that guilt. To alleviate themselves of having to consider. They wanted to find fault. The Holy Spirit's presence in your life will convict the world of sin. A man was once on a train in the 1800s. It was Charles Finney. And while he was on the train, a guy sitting next to him said, Sir, I'm convicted of the presence of sin in my life when I sit next to you. He had never spoken to him. The anointing was on this man in such a way that they said when he came through a town... Conviction would break out on the people and revival would break forth. I don't know about you, but I want the characteristics of my Father in me to the point where that's true about my life. Where the things that people see me do, being the salt of the earth, being the light that God has called us to be, causes people to praise the Father. Now, I want to encourage those of you that are not perfect, if there are any in here that are not. One of the ways that they praise the Father is by going, Wow! I knew David when he had such a long ways to go. And look how good he's doing now. That could only be the Father's work in his life. Everything that we see good in David came from one source. 
Everything that we see good in Judah had to come from one source, the Heavenly Father. And so He's worthy of praise. See, when they see the power of lives that are changed, they can't help but naturally attribute it to the Father because it's like the law of gravity. We know that anything good came from God. So if you're not perfect yet, you can be joyful that as they see progress in your life, it can only be attributed to one source, your Father. The same way that men look at other men's kids and draw conclusions about their parents, people look at your lives and draw conclusions about God. You know, people that view God as a mean old man with a stick waiting to crush all of the children either did not have fathers that loved them or were a part of a church where they called their pastors or priest fathers that gave them the wrong impression about God. Because that's not the story that the Bible paints. That's not a father's natural inclination towards his children. It's love. And the children are taught to reciprocate that. In Matthew, you see that your actions provide a testimony about the Father. Let's turn to John 1. I want you to know, not 1 John, but John 1, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. I want you to know that in all of the Old Testament, and by the way, the Old Testament makes up the majority of the Bible, some 39 books, some 70% of your whole Bible, is what we call the Old Testament. I've gotten to where I don't even like those terms. It implies that it's old and we needed something new. That's not really the case. It's one fluid story about God. But in what we call the Old Testament, only nine times is the word Father used speaking about God. Only nine times. Isn't that that somewhat surprising? And then of those nine times, the majority are prophetically speaking about Jesus calling God His Father or God speaking about Jesus saying, I am your Father and today I've begotten you as my Son. The majority are. In the New Testament, over 255 times, we refer to God as our Father with a capital F, as Abba. This is because Jesus came to reveal God not just as a Creator, not just as the beginner of things, not just as a source, but as a personal Father-type relationship to you. This is why the word Abba is used. It means Daddy. He could have used other words. He could have said He's simply God. He's simply the beginning. All of those things are true about Him, but He called Him Father over 255 times in the New Testament. Are you all in the book of John? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. It's a point that John wants to make from the very beginning, that this guy who's going to become flesh, the Word of God that's going to become flesh that we call Jesus, was with God in the very beginning. There's a reason. There's a reason. Why is it so important to know that from the very beginning the Word was right there? Because the Word came to us in human form with a mission. He came with a purpose. It's found in John 1.18. No one has ever seen God, but God the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made Him known. There's a problem. There's a problem. We're supposed to be God's children, but we did not know Him. We had not seen Him. We didn't comprehend Him or understand Him. So it was necessary that His Word, His instruction about Him show up for us in bodily form to teach us about God. Nobody had ever seen God at any time except God the One and Only who was at the Father's side and He is making Him knowable. Are we talking about seeing or knowing? He said nobody's ever seen God, but then He says the One and Only will make Him known. So what are we talking about? This is an expression. It's kind of like when I'm preaching, I say, do you see it? What I mean is, do you understand? Nobody had ever been able to comprehend God in the way that the one and only Son does because He was the fullness of Him. So God showed us Himself through the Son. The Son makes Him understandable to you, makes Him comprehensible to you. Well, how did He do that? 
Remember, we just read in Matthew 5. In Matthew 5, it said, if the salt loses its saltiness, what good is it? If the light that is put on a hill is hidden under a bushel, what good is it? Let your light shine before men so that they may see something. What are they supposed to see? Your deeds. And what do they do? Praise the Father. Well, when we see the things that Jesus did, it's supposed to cause you to praise the Father. He's our example in this regard. You're supposed to see the life of Jesus and go, Oh my God! God the Father is good! Look at what He does! Look at the way He cares for us! Look at the way that He cares for His children! You say, Man, He's good! His life caused that. This is what we're supposed to do. Our lives are supposed to cause people to say, Wow, God really is good. Not David's perfect. Not Bobby's perfect. Not Judah's perfect. But look at how good God's been in their lives. He's a good God. That's what our lives are supposed to convey. On Father's Day, as you think about your father, as you think about being a father at my stage in this life, what I most want in my children's lives are for their lives to portray something about my character and God's character. People are going to make that judgment anyway. If my son is misbehaving everywhere he goes, the Bible says that it's a shame to me. But if he's righteous, it's like an arrow in the hands of a warrior. An arrow for who? Judah will advance the kingdom of God. I know it as sure as the day is long. You know how I know it? Because we're doing everything that we can to show him God's nature in us. This is our goal. We owe a debt to our fathers. We owe a debt to our fathers because if nothing else, they helped you get on this earth. If nothing else, their very station in life, whether or not they lived up to the calling, taught us something about God. We owe that debt to our fathers. Y'all in John? Look at John 8. Jesus came to reveal the Father. His purpose was to make the Father knowable, understandable to you. Make the Father something that you could comprehend. If I look at Nicole and say, Nicole, Describe God to me. Lord, have mercy. Where would you start? David said, if I go to the highest heavens, He's there. If I go down to the depths of the earth, He's there. Where would you start in your description about God? A man one time asked a little girl who was on her way to church. She was in the 17th century and was a great skeptic. He was an atheist who had set out in his life to disprove the existence of God. It's funny. As he began to examine the Word to disprove the existence of God, he became a Christian. But one of the things that he wrote later that plagued him so much was that on his way, I think he was going to a local tavern, there was a girl on the way to church, a little girl. And he said, tell me something, little girl, where are you going? She said, I'm on the way to church. He said, really? Is your God a big God or a little God? She said, sir, he's both. He's big enough that the heavens can't contain him and he's small enough that he fits in my heart. From such a small child, this inspired answer caused the guy to really think. And as he went to go disprove the things that he had heard about God, he was converted. If I asked Nicole to describe God today, where would you start? He's enormous. His works are magnificent. But if he bottled himself in a human being that was a perfect representation of him, then you could describe the actions of that human and attribute it to God. That's what Jesus is. He's the perfect representation of God. He's the human being that God filled with Himself and appointed as ruler over everything so that you could know and relate to God. So you can look at the actions of Jesus and know something about His Father the same way that you look at the actions of my children and know something about me. Well, when people looked at these actions, it was interesting. In John 8, that's on page 1187 in the Thompson chain, Y'all still awake or y'all still with me? This is okay? All right. Y'all don't want to put gas pumps in here and do something besides church? We can play chess, checkers. No, y'all want to learn about God? That's good because remember, He moves according to your hunger. The Bible says to eagerly desire Him and that He's jealous for you. In John 8, starting in verse 12, something's happened. Jesus' actions towards an adulterous woman a woman who was caught in the act of adultery, what would you think God would do in that situation? Let me ask you something. 
a harsh father who caught his little girl doing something that she shouldn't be doing, what might he do? See, the people wanted, they wanted Jesus to show judgment from God. They wanted Jesus to be harsh towards people that had sinned. And they were angry because Jesus showed mercy instead. When you really love a child, it's hard to discipline them harshly, isn't it? I mean, have you ever been so mad at your child that you really wanted to lay into them good, but there's something about them that you just love and it's, it's hard to do it? I remember when Matthew's little girl, Natalie, first started getting old enough to spank. And, you know, Matt's got hands that look like a paddle. I mean, a guy can grip all the way around a basketball. And he would go to spank Natalie. And I, it was comical to me because Matt would take a backswing that looked like John Daly on the golf course, you know? Hand would come all the way back here. And it would accelerate all the way down until we got to about six inches from her butt and it would stop and you'd see a... <laughs> you know, the intent was there to discipline and discipline powerfully. But the mercy and love that a father had for his child caused it to be a, instead of a, <laughs> you understand what I mean? Now times change and that fades. <laughs> and, and I do understand that. People were looking for Jesus to smack down every sin and be a God that came through and crushed everybody that was not legalistically righteous. And instead, what they found in Him was mercy for those that had fallen. Mercy for those that were just willing to admit they needed His help. And this angered the Pharisees. So in verse 12, they're having a little discussion. When Jesus spoke again to the people, He said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows Me will never walk in darkness, but I will have, but will have the light of life. The Pharisees challenged Him, Here you are appearing as your own witness, your testimony is not valid. Jesus answered, Even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid. For I know where I came from and where I'm going. But you have no idea where I come from or where I'm going. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. But if I do judge, my decisions are right because I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. Remember that the mission of Jesus was to make God somebody who was understandable, knowable to you, so that you would see the characteristics of the Son and glorify the Father. So He's there. And everything that He's doing, He's doing with the Father's approval so that people will learn about Him and they don't like what they see. Verse 17, In your law it is written that the testimony of two men is valid. I am one who testifies for myself. The other witness is my Father who sent me. Then they asked him, Where is your Father? You do not know me or my Father, Jesus replied. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. To truly understand the Father, you just have to know Jesus. But if you looked at Jesus and you didn't like what you saw, what did that mean by implication? You didn't really like God. The same should be true of our lives. When people see us, if you're living a godly life, if you are loving the people that are around you, which is where we started with this message, if you're acting like God towards them and they don't like it, what does that mean? It's not you they don't like. It's the Father who sent you. But if you're living around them and you're living out your will and your desire rather than God's and they don't like it, then you suffer like any regular criminal. That's why Peter says, if you're persecuted for the Son's sake, for the sake of righteousness, the glory of God rests upon your shoulders. Not you, they're persecuting. It's totally okay with me to have somebody hate me because of the gospel. It is heartbreaking and crushing to me to have somebody even dislike me because of me, not the gospel. Do you understand the difference? It's hard to divide that sometimes because you know what? We're not perfect. That's also where we started with the message. But if your intent is right, your merciful Father will credit you with righteousness. Sometimes we think our intent's right, though, and our actions show that it's really not. It's a half-hearted commitment. Then they asked him, Where is your Father? You do not know me or my Father, Jesus replied. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple area near the place where the offerings were put. 
Yet no one seized him because his time had not yet come. Once more, Jesus said to them, I am going away. You will look for me and you will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. This made the Jews ask, will he kill himself? Is that why he says, where I go, you cannot come? But he continued, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Do you remember what I told you about the natural flow of love and goodness? Where does it come from? We read it in James. Every good and perfect gift is from where? It's from above. It's natural that the flow of all good things comes from the top down. Jesus is saying, you don't understand because I come from the top down. I was in heaven and now I'm here showing you good things. You're from below. You have to be taught how to do good things, how to see good things, how to reciprocate this love to God. Their very law taught this. This was the point of honor your father and mother. It was natural. You didn't have to tell a father to love his child. That was a natural flow of authority. But you had to teach the child to honor his father. Now here Jesus is with them. He says, you don't understand because the natural flow of things is me coming from above showing you something. You're from below. You need to be taught to reciprocate this. But they were slow to learn this message. You are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. If you do not believe that I am the one I claim to be, you will indeed die in your sins. Who are you, they asked. Just what I've been claiming all along, Jesus replied. I have much to say in judgment of you, but he who sent me is reliable. And what I've heard him, what I've heard from him, I will tell the world. They did not understand that he was telling them about his father. So Jesus said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am the one I claim to be and that I do nothing on my own but speak just what the Father has taught me. The one who has sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases Him. Matthew 5 teaches us, this chapter in John 8 teaches us that our job is to live lives that are pleasing to the Father. John, 1 John 4 says that we love Him because He first loved us. He set the example for you by showing mercy. And interestingly enough, what does He want you to do? Show love and mercy to those that are around you. Why is that so far from our, our conception of things? What do you want to do to spread the kingdom? What do you want to do to teach people about God? Tell them what they're doing wrong. Tell them why they shouldn't be doing all the things that they're doing. But how did God show His love to you? By showing you mercy. This is why Matthew 6 that we'll read towards the end of this message says, you've been shown mercy. And if you don't show it, mercy will not be shown to you. In other words, God set the example for us. He's shown us what He would like for us to do by His actions toward us. It's our job to teach people about the Father because of that. You can learn an awful lot about a person by watching their children. You really can. When you see a kid that is quick to anger, that is a bully, you go home, you don't find a meek, gentle father that's full of love. You find a father that's quick to anger and a bully. Everything that we do, you say, this is Father's Day and all this relates to men. Now, in the sense that fathers are the authors of things, that the beginning of something, everything that you do sets into motion some kind of action that you're the father of. We just get to decide whether it's going to be good actions or bad actions. The Bible calls this your fruit. You're the father of that. I want it to be good things. Listen to how they thought about Jesus and what Jesus said to them. Then we'll move on. This is found in verse 31. To the Jews who had believed Him, Jesus said... If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Who did he say that to? To the Jews who had believed him. Isn't it interesting that people that believed on Jesus, that believed his word, he said, if you hold to it, then you're really my disciples? It was not enough that they believed. They had to hold to it. It's not enough that you had an experience with God when you were a little kid. It's not enough that you walked an aisle and got baptized. You must hold to the teachings of God if you really want to be His. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. 
They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants, and we have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say we shall be set free? Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you are ready to kill me because you have no room for my word. I am telling you what I have seen in the Father's presence, and you do what you have heard from your father. A child's actions determines whether they are a legitimate child or an illegitimate child. If you see a child do something that is like their father, what do you say? Wow, he's a chip off the old block. When I got into sales and my father was in sales, that was not a surprise to people, right? They say the apple does not fall far from the tree. But when you see a child act drastically different, everything about their life portrays a different message than their father, it causes you to scratch your head, doesn't it? These people said, Abraham is our father, but Jesus is going to accuse them of not acting like Abraham and call them illegitimate children. Then he's going to go ahead and define who their father is. I don't want to read this whole chapter to you. Anybody remember who he said their father was? The devil. Why? Was it because of what they believed? Because of what they did. It was because of their actions. So what determines who your father is from a heavenly perspective? Who you act most like. Do you know why that is? Why would your actions determine whose child you are? You have two natures that are within you. The the truth is you have a fallen nature that is within you. What was the source of that fallen nature? Sin. The source of that fallen nature was from a rebellion that existed on this planet before you ever got here, that you became wrapped up in as one of our fathers sin. But you also have another father, the source of your life that puts you on the earth. And both of those natures are in you, and they are at war. Matthew and I have been watching this uh, show called Into the West that is coming on TV, and I'm scared to endorse it because I haven't seen the whole thing. But Jedediah Smith was a mountain man in this, this Western show, and he said something that I thought was really profound. It's not exactly correct as far as the Scripture goes, but it's a correct idea. A young man was tempted to sin, and Jedediah Smith was standing off in the distance reading his Bible, and the young man came and sat by him, and he said, you know, I'm really not any better than those fellows down there that want to sin because I want to. Incredibly honest moment, right? Jedediah Smith looked at him and said, son, the good Lord created man a little lower than the angels and a little bit above the beast. You have both in you, and you're torn towards both all of the time, but you've chosen to sit right here. That's an excellent way to think about it. It's an excellent way to realize that you have two natures in you that are warring and that you get to choose each day whose child you will be. Like that rap song says, who's my baby's daddy? You get to choose who your baby's daddy's going to be each day by your actions. And if your actions are those of God... God declares you to be His Son and people will glorify Him because of you. If your actions are not of God, people will glorify the other Father because of you. Think about people who have done that. Are there not some... Think about this in the 80s, those of you that remember the 80s. If not, watch VH1. They'll relive the 80s for you. We went through a time period in heavy metal music where people were singing Shout at the Devil and backspinning records and all of these things. Who were they trying to glorify? You said, well, it's just a trick to sell money. But who did... To sell money, to sell records and get money. But who did it glorify? So what did kids do? Man, we started... This gave birth to a generation of kids that talked about anarchy and the Antichrist and all of these things because their heroes' lives glorified their father and so people praised that father and imitated him. Just think, though, how powerful it is when it goes the other way. When there's a man like Keith Green, who hadn't been alive now for almost 30 years, but his life, the deeds that he did, have inspired us to honor his father. So we all have a powerful thing within us. All of us, as children of the Heavenly Father, have the opportunity to bring praise to him through our actions. 
Man, what a power that is. We get to choose each day whether or not we'll do that. Jesus came to make the Father known. His actions taught us about the Father. Jesus declared about other people who claimed to believe in the same God that He did, whose lives were outwardly much more holy than most of ours. Jesus rebuked them because their actions, the attitudes of their heart expressed in their actions showed that they did not share the same Father. I'd intended to read all of John 8, but I'm scared within my soul that I'm going to put you to sleep if I do it. So turn with me to Matthew 6. We have a couple more scriptures here, and I think you will get the point, and we can go on and enjoy a Father's Day. If you have not called your Father today, do it. And if He is not living, then you glorify your heavenly Father today because He's a Father to the fatherless. That's what the Bible says. In Matthew 6, we hear instructions about how to please God, how to relate to God as your Father. Matthew 6 says, Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men, to be seen by them. Isn't that interesting? We just learned that if you live your life in a way that your life in a way that is reflecting the light of God, men will see it and they'll praise God. But Jesus says, "Don't let that be your motivation." Isn't that odd? Is that kind of a paradox? When you live a life that is oriented towards pleasing the Father, others will see it and they will praise God. When you live your life for men to see, when that's your goal when your goal is not on the Father but the reactions of men, you cannot get it right. You can't do it. You remember Joseph. He's a great example. His life caused him to seek the favor of the Father and it caused his brothers to reject him. What would have happened if he had determined what he did based on how his brothers reacted? We never would have seen him lifted to become an example of Jesus and all of the things that he did. So as I'm telling you that you live in such a way that your deeds would cause you to praise the Father, it's very important that you get the right perspective on this. This does not mean that you take a poll. Matthew, TJ, Darnell, Diana. If I do this, how will this be viewed? It does not mean that you live your life by polling data and that you are overly concerned with the way that everybody reacts. It means that you aim to be pleasing to the Father knowing something. Those the Father wants will glorify Him because of your actions when you're obedient. So that's why Jesus says, Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by men. I can't help. I want to digress here for a minute. Do you honestly believe that they blew trumpets before they gave alms to the poor? Does anybody in here honestly believe that somebody who is supposed to be a priest of God, supposed to be an example, did that? This is a Jewish idiom. I'm reading books about Jewish idioms right now. <laughs> and I think it adds a little meaning to the Scripture. In the court of, uh, of the women, there were 13 boxes. And these boxes had a per- peculiar shape to them. In a day before we had electronic security where you couldn't have a passcode to get into a safe. There was not much options but a kind of lockbox, a dropbox. And if you wanted to make sure that somebody couldn't steal from you and you had an offering box, the easiest design in the world was a wide base so it could hold lots of money, right? All church offering plates should have a wide base. I'm kidding. But a very narrow neck so that a hand didn't fit down in it. You might say that that's shaped a little bit like a trumpet, wouldn't you? But if I didn't want to be discreet, if I wasn't really interested in giving gifts to the poor in these, but what I was interested in is all of you seeing how righteous I was, I might take a bunch of coins and put them in this trumpet-shaped vase with lots of force so that everybody heard it and everybody saw it. That's a hypocrite sounding the trumpet, and that's what they were doing. Doesn't that add a little bit to the word? It sure helps to know the Jewish background of the word and not be divorced from its roots. Uh, So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. 
But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your inner room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. I want to emphasize something before we move on from this because we're going to close here in a minute. I have just spent half of an hour telling you that your deeds need to be seen by men. And now I'm closing with Scriptures that say don't do things for men to see. I want you to understand that this has to do with the difference between a superficial religion that is just outward appearances for people to see and something that is sincere, that is motivated by real love and real caring. That's what he's talking about. Whether or not you're doing it for the praise of men or the praise of God. But watch where we go. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Forgive us as we have forgiven. When Jesus began to teach about the Father's nature and how people should pray, when He came to reveal it, even in the prayer... You, hear, you can hear the language, we've received forgiveness, and so we're forgiving other people. This is the language of 1 John. In fact, listen to how this closes. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. God has demonstrated His love and His kindness to you already at this point in your life. This is at the moment that you declared that you were saved, although it's not done yet. If you're really His disciple, you have to hold to His teachings. And if you live a life of mercy and love and forgiveness, then God will credit you with everything that you've credited everybody else. You have an awesome responsibility today. The responsibility is to reflect your Father's nature. Jesus came and showed us how to do it perfectly. He will credit you with His righteousness if your intent is to do it perfectly, if you're striving for that. And you carry a great responsibility before you today because people will look at your nature and your character and draw conclusions about God. Recently in the news, there have been these guys that work for a church that have done bad things to children. Why do you think the devil's worked so hard to cause things like that to happen? those children will grow up with a wrong conception about God. Now, that's a horrible example. How we treat people on a daily basis, the extent to whether or not we show them love and the extent of the love that we show them reflects something about God to them the same way that your parents reflected it to you or did not reflect it to you. This is the responsibility. It's Father's Day today and we're all going to honor our fathers and we all honor our Heavenly Father, but you need to learn from this principle. It will profoundly affect people for the rest of their life. You're the author of something today. You're the author of your very own actions. A guy named Jubal is said to be the father of all who lives in tents. You know why? He's the first one to live in a tent. Somebody else is the father of music and metalworking. Tubal, T-U-B-A-L, I think, in Genesis. You know why? He's the first one that ever did it. You can be the first one to show love to the unlovable today. You can be the first one to live out the actions of God before somebody and then you'll be honored on Father's Day because in their life, you were the first one that did it. You were the first one that showed a reflection of the Father to them. The patriarchs were fathers. In fact, you can call the dispensation of the fathers if you want, but I hate that word. And it goes from Adam all the way down to Jacob. From Adam, we see the father of the human race who faithfully waited on his redemption. 
Then we move from Adam to Noah. Noah was the father of all the nations on the planet who faithfully did God's work all the days of his life. He built a boat and he raised his children. Abraham, the father of the faithful. You know what his great task was? He faithfully raised the promised son. You can do this all the way down through Isaac and Jacob and you look at these men's lives and they instituted something that taught us about God. We will leave a legacy behind us. All of us will. I want it to be a legacy that reflects something about God's nature. Male and female in here, all of you will father something. And if you can't do anything else with your earthly father, you need to find something in the legacy that they left you that taught you the goodness of God because it flowed down from God through them. Nothing happened in your life while you were a child that did not flow goodness from God. I mean, if He's the source of every good and perfect gift, anything you got came from Him. And you wouldn't be here if it didn't come through some earthly parents. So call your father today. Tell him you love him, that you're thankful. And if you have to bite your tongue while you do it because you're also worried about the bad things, you remember that in your life you've been shown mercy and you show them some mercy. Love will cover a multitude of sins and you'll be healthier people if you have a right view of your Father and your Heavenly Father because God intended it to flow in that way. Y'all stand up and let's pray. By the way, the phrase in the Old Testament, when somebody died, they wanted something. They wanted to be gathered to their fathers. Do you know why that is? Why would somebody want to be gathered to their fathers upon death? Because their fathers had lived righteous lives and they wanted to be brought to the same place their fathers were. I want to live the kind of life that when my children are old, they want to be gathered to their fathers. They want to be brought to the place that their father went. I want to leave that kind of legacy. You ready to pray?